Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB TV's Lawmakers and Lawmakers Beyond the Dome, filling in for Bill Nygut. Lots to talk about after a weekend where the U.S. Senate approved a sweeping bill to combat climate change, deal with prescription drug costs, and add minimum taxes to large corporations. The bill fuels the Republican accusations that Washington isn't dealing with inflation, but is focused on spending and taxing. We're also going to talk about sentencing on federal charges for the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan in the Ahmaud Arbery killing. And will Donald Trump throw support behind Brian Kemp's election? We'll talk about that. We have a great panel of journalists who cover politics and more. First, the AJC's political columnist and member of the AJC politics team that produces the Jolt News every weekday, Patricia Murphy. Welcome, Patricia. Good morning, Donna. It's so great to be with you. Also, from our own GPB public policy reporter, Riley Bunch, glad you're here. Doing good, Donna. Happy to fill in on the panel with you as a host today. And from WABE, politics reporter Rahul Bali. Hi, Rahul. It's always good to be on with my my former partner in crime on Lawmakers. I love that. Thanks for being here. And also from Axios Atlantic, Crystal Dixon, welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here, uh, Patricia. Let's start with you. You you started you in the in the jolt today. You had something about what happened over the weekend with this uh, sweeping bill to combat climate change. And the big thing that's important to Georgia is Senator Raphael Warnock dealing with prescription drug costs. So this bill was passed after just a series of marathon votes over late night Saturday and then into Sunday morning. And the bill ended up passing with just 50 Democratic votes. Um, All Republicans voted against and Vice President Kamala Harris cast that tie-breaking vote and embedded in this legislation, which is quite sweeping. It includes a whole bunch for climate change. It has some significant tax provisions. But in there specifically for Senator Warnock are two individual items that he's been pushing for um, for quite some time. The first is a $35 cap on the cost of insulin, but it's just targeted to Medicare recipients right now. The second piece would cap out-of-pocket spending for seniors to $2,000 a year. And those are two items he's been pushing for a long time. There was another piece of an insulin bill that he was hoping to get through, and Republicans really went in, carved that out, and spiked it. Um, I think that has a lot to do with him being up for re-election, but Republicans were able to kill that on a procedural motion as well. So a ton in that bill, but Warnock definitely got some important um, wins that he's been looking for for a while now. But Riley, he didn't get everything he wanted, right? He This, this whole idea that he wanted pre- prescription drug costs capped for even the private sector did not pass, and yet he's calling it a win. Yeah, definitely. That was a huge um, kind of campaign priority and has been for Georgia Democrats going up so far as this $35 
copay cap for insulin for um, everyone on insurance, right? So it doesn't address the uninsured population, but it would have addressed everyone on insurance. So then there was back and forth um, in the Senate on this, and there were a lot of Senate Republicans on the Finance Committee specifically pushing it back against this provision. Um, another one of the things that did not make it in the bill that Warnock was pushing for was the federal workaround for states that didn't have to expand Medicaid, right? So to hold out states like Georgia, this is something that he's also campaigning on. Um, Stacey Abrams as well. We see this big on the Democrat side, but that didn't make it in the bill. He offered an amendment and that failed. So that was one of the other things Georgia um, on the healthcare side that Georgia Democrats were pushing for that did not quite make it. Yeah, and Raul, I, I do want to mention the there was a Wall Street Journal opinion piece on all of this, and it said if drug makers must give Medicare steep discounts on certain drugs, they will compensate by increasing prices in the commercial market. So the feeling is these higher premiums are going to cost insured Americans down the road. And that's the thing we're going to be watching for because, you know, experts that I've been talking to for years have been like, what if the federal government, because of the size of the federal government and because of the size of Medicare, if they negotiated drug prices, they could bring those prices down. But you're right, what happens What happens on the other end? It's, you know, it, Now this does take a couple of years before negotiated uh, prices go in, uh, starting in around 2026. Uh, for some drugs, and then uh, 2028 for other drugs. So, you know, but this is still, a, it's still important. For example, look at Georgia. Georgia has almost 2 million people on Medicare, and a lot of those, in many of those people are on medication. So what happens to, med, to, to those medication prices for you and me is going to be just as important as what happens with Medicare? Yeah, I think a lot of people were hoping that we'd see a little bit more. One of the things we did see is this cap at $2,000 for Medicare Crystal. And the other thing is, this bill really seems to fuel the GOP's accusation that Washington isn't dealing with inflation, that it's all about taxing and spending. That's definitely um, what the GOP is saying. I just actually saw a tweet from Barry Loudermilk, who's a congressman who represents um, I guess North Metro Atlanta, he basically said the Democrats are just out to tax and spend and not really handle um, what's going on, not handle inflation. So we're definitely going to see a lot of um, Republicans and uh, their supporters kind of wrap up that, that rhetoric as, um, as the days and weeks press on. Yeah, I'm, I want to talk a, about another part of this, and that is dealing with the, the, the climate change stuff and elect, electric vehicles. And Patricia, I wanted to talk about it contains $369 billion of funding for things like clean energy, domestic manufacturing of batteries, solar panels, pollution reduction. That's good. It also calls for electric vehicle tax breaks. But the AJC reported last week that Rivian, which is building the plant in Georgia, may not be eligible for those tax incentives because the cost of its vehicles will be too high. Yes. Well, I think that there was a good bit of debate, um, not just in the Senate, but really across all of public policy. Um, are these tax incentives necessary for all electric cars? When you look at something like a Tesla or a Rivian, those really have become prestige vehicles. They are driven by very, very wealthy individuals. Do you need to give those drivers 
$7,500, for example, um, in cash or tax breaks in order to incentivize them to drive those cars? Like, what's the bare minimum you need to do to get drivers who would not otherwise buy an electric vehicle or for whom purchasing an electric vehicle would otherwise be too expensive? How can you get them to transition to EVs from gas vehicles? So that's been a big piece of this debate, and the reason that uh, the, the price cap was put in there um, is because people who are driving Teslas right now are very high-income people typically and probably don't need that tax break. At some point, you, I think policymakers have decided they have to draw the line somewhere. Um, I think that's an important piece of this bill. There are lots of other measures, and you know we'll have to go through this really with a fine-tooth comb as it gets through the House and across President Biden's desk. Um, there is money in there to retrofit retrofit people's homes from old air conditioners. There's going to be money for um, to speed solar manufacturing. A lot of it is through tax incentives rather than through tax penalties. That's a big piece that um, moderate Democrats were pushing for. There's going to be money for the coal industry. Obviously, that is something that Joe Manchin was pushing for. Um, so this really represents sort of uh, a consensus bill. It's not everything that environmentalists had hoped to get through, but it does represent the biggest policy change through tax incentives rather than penalties or uh, major policy changes um, that Democrats have really ever been able to get through. So they're calling it a win anyway. Yeah. And they I mean, it is a massive bill, right, Rahul? And there's a lot in there. there. And there's a lot for the House to look at, you know, both Democratic and, and you know, Republican lawmakers, they're going to try to make changes to the bill, too. I do find the EV portion really interesting in the context of the state of Georgia because of Rivian, because of the Hyundai plant being built, because of the SK battery plant in North Georgia. I do wonder if there's going to be a role for Republican lawmakers to either make adjustments or changes to this bill on that specific portion. Um, but I'm definitely... I do think I'm going to watch to see what what the House does uh, um, with this legislation. Yeah, so the House is supposed to come in on Friday, Crystal, and kind of wrap this up, and right. and we're looking at pretty much a done deal, right? That's pretty much it. Um, I, I'm I'm like my rule. I'm really going to see. I'm interested to see how uh, this passes. Um, well, it well it's going to pass, but see how see if there's going to be any changes. Um, I guess we'll just have to see. We have to wait a few more days until Friday to see what see what comes out of this. So. Riley, your thoughts? You know, there's like we said, this is a massive bill. It's about 755 pages long, right? Uh, but in the end, whatever gets passed, what you know, what ends up, what doesn't end up, this is going to play out on the Georgia campaign trail. And you know, Crystal touched on this earlier. We're going to see Democrats, you know, on the especially Senator Warnock, right? You know, talking about how big of a win this was, and which came from you know the the Senate. The vote on in the Georgia U.S. Senate that sent two senators to Congress last year, right? And then on the flip side of it, we're going to see and have already seen Republicans slamming Kemp. We have Kemp and Herschel Walker slamming um, Democrats that this is going to, you know, a, a contribute to massive inflation and government spending, right? So that no matter what ends up in this bill, we are going to see it play out in both sides on the campaign trail right here in Georgia. 
Thank you so much for that. I want to get a little bit, bit back into what Governor Kemp uh, talked about last week. Uh, and, and Patricia, we'll, we can talk about this a little bit more. He joined a group of governors, like this coalition of governors, who are blasting Democrats about these proposals. This seems to be this whole inflation idea is the, the big thing they're going to they're going to hang a lot on right now. Absolutely. And that is because inflation is something that um, not just Georgians, people across the country. And if you ask Democrats, they'll tell you people across the globe. They love to point out that it's a global inflationary cycle um, that's happening right now. But this is people's everyday reality that they are paying more for gas. Um, than they were this time last year, paying a lot more for groceries, paying a lot more for housing. Um, there has just been this unbelievable run up in everybody's, um, every section of everybody's sort of day-to-day -day le uh, ledger. And it's not just um, things that are uh, things that you can choose. It's not just luxuries. It's something, it's uh, every single um, sort of requirement of life that you can think of has probably had a major price increase. So even if you have a job, your buying power has gone down. Even if you've gotten a raise this year, your buying power has gone down. So there is just an incredibly strong job market, but it does feel like the job market is really competing with inflation just to help people keep their heads above water. So Georgians, not just Georgians, but um, Governor Kemp and other Republican governors see that in their polling. They see that anxiety. The AJC saw in its own polling, the economy is far and away the most important issue to Georgia voters heading into November. And so Republican governors want to harness that anxiety and say that we are the answer. They are the answer to that, um, especially Governor Kemp in a state like Georgia, where the economy is quite strong. But again, people are feeling it in their pocketbooks. Um, what can he say to um, sort of not distract from what the Democrats are doing, but say the Democrats are distracted in what they're doing, that the choices they're making in, on the policy front are focused on um, climate change, healthcare costs, changing ACA subsidies, which was another big piece of that bill, um, but it's not addressing inflation head on. That's, that's going to be the charge from Republicans. Um, I think that's a really smart tack to take because inflation is, in fact, very difficult to meet head on. It's sort of like a gigantic, um, a gigantic uh, uh, process and um, cycle that is very difficult to meet with individual policy proposals. So, so the Republican governors know they have a strong argument and they're going to use that all the way into November. Yeah, so will this be a distraction maybe or using the inflation role as a, a distraction from some of the other issues that are out there using this bill coming up with the House, uh, whatever they might do by the end of the week when they vote on this? I, I, I don't call it a distraction because inflation is a big deal for folks. You know, it's, it's still, whether it's, it's, it's groceries, um, whether it's, uh, um, you know, uh, gas prices, it, it's an issue that there's a reason why on the campaign trail, when I've talked to candidates, Republican candidates, and bring up other issues, that they'll touch on that issue, whether it's abortion or other issues, and they quickly go back to inflation and the economy because it is a big deal. So I wouldn't consider it really a distraction. It's a big deal because, and, and we see it in the polling numbers. Um, much bigger issue on the Republican side, but still a top issue on the Democratic side. So there's a reason why Republican candidates uh, uh, keep coming back to uh, coming back to the economy, coming back to gas prices. 
Yeah. So, Riley, you know, we we uh, we know the Democrats are going to be portion, pushing abortion and some, some other what they consider big issues. This is something for the Republicans to really hang on. Absolutely. And I totally agree with Raul on this. I feel like Democrats biggest challenge right now is can they drive home their motivating issues over inflation and over the economy and worries that touch everyone regardless of what party you're in, right? This is not like a cultural war. This is prices at the grocery store, prices at the gas pump. So Democrats are trying to push their, um, you know, abortion, gun, gun restrictions, things like that. They're up against this huge issue of economy. And that is exactly why Republicans continue to drive that home, right? That's what they have going for them right now. Um, and I would also say that Abrams, too, she is very smart in the way she addresses the other issues. She always kind of circles things back to the economy, right? Abortion is an economic issue. Healthcare is an economic issue. And, and you know, she knows that the economy is front of mind. So when she's continuing trying to push, um, you know, messaging on these other top issues for Democrats, it always also kind of circles back full circle to the economy. So we'll, we'll, I'll be interested to see how that kind of dynamic continues to play out as the campaigns get close to the election. Yeah, and Donna, no, I wait, think Patricia. that, oh sure, yeah. I think that Senate Democrats, of course, know that inflation is is a voters' top issue. And so that's why they renamed this bill from the Build Back Better Act to the Inflation Reduction Act. Like it's had a full rebranding as inflation has gotten so acute in people's minds. And so Senator Warnock will point to these measures to cap insulin costs, to cap the price of drugs. He's targeting sort of individual big ticket items for especially low and middle income um, voters uh, to say, uh, we are going to cut costs for you, um, even as sort of inflation is doing what it does, we're going to make sure that prices don't get out of control for your own lives. And then, it, Raul? I, just a quick thing on, on what Riley was talking about. It was interesting to me because I, I heard on the campaign trail, Stacey Abrams roll out another um, interesting um, argument on this. And it was the idea that what's happening with the economy and inflation is temporary, but what happens with abortion rights is permanent and long-term. So um, that that was something else that I've seen. I want to see if she's going to keep using that and if other Democrats use that. Yeah, she talked about it on Meet the Press yesterday and specifically, and she was also on CNN's uh, show yesterday that talked about this. One of the things, Crystal, that she also talked about was what she focuses on what she calls the crisis levels when it comes to health care and affordable housing. She's really pushing this affordable housing. And I know you've done some writing on this. Talk about that a little bit. Well, um, affordable housing is usually was something that, that was usually, um, I guess, relegated to people who um, generally, I guess, made low, lower income or and politicians who supported them. But we've in the last few years, we've seen affordable housing become an issue that sort of encroached upon the middle class and people who typically didn't have to worry about, um, I guess, having to choose between paying their rent or mortgage or uh, getting um, other basic necessities. So now that's becoming into it's becoming a more mainstream topic, if you will. Um, you're starting to see her kind of roll out this platform that would sort of, um, I guess, encourage governments to consider, um, I guess, it, I guess, uh, approving affordable housing, I guess, policies that would, I guess, um, approve affordable housing. Excuse me. And so it's been it's been really interesting. Um, this topic has really gotten a lot of attention. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people who 
historically have never talked about affordable housing sort of, you know, dive into this topic. So it'll be really interesting to see if this trend picks up and if it continues to carry a 68% to November. I'll be really interested to see if Governor Kemp also um, makes any kind of uh, additional policy proposals that would address affordable housing. So. Yeah, I know that I, you know, on a personal level, I know that, for instance, my daughter helped a young woman move this weekend whose uh, uh, rent has gone up, is going up $300 a month. So there's, there is a segment of the population this is going to resonate with when it comes to rent, when it comes to finding housing, not just, you know, people on the lower end, but more in the middle class. I mean, she has a good job. I, I know some others within that the, um, 20, 30-something age groups that are really ha struggling to find affordable housing in this area. Right. Riley, I just wonder how much you see this playing a part in things uh, coming up. I think it's one of those issues that might not make all the headlines, but is important for candidates to address and for a couple reasons. So we do have on one end, right, the um, increase in rent for everyone. You know, Atlanta is so hard to find somewhere to live right now. But also, as we saw um, this past week in the state legislature, it also impacts um, our population of people experiencing homelessness, right? And the visibility of these populations on the street in the state legislature last week, um, we saw lawmakers try to tackle this issue and um, in a study committee. And the, it tied straight back to affordable housing, right? So I think it's one of those issues that is important for candidates to have a platform on and have policy ideas on, um, will it make the headlines and you know beat out kind of abortion, gun rights, inflation, these big ones that are on top of voters' minds? I don't think so, but I, I think it plays a role, especially right now. I think it'd yeah, be really Crystal, interesting. I, I, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to see if this issue would. Yeah, I think this would be it'll be interesting to see if this issue would, I guess, um, I guess attract voters who may not really. Uh, historically vote in, I guess, uh, statewide elections to come out and consider uh, casting their vote for a candidate who, I guess, according to their political views, would address the affordable housing topic. I'm really interested to see if young people like myself who are in their 20s and 30s who um, see the housing market and they're not able to um, save enough to buy a home or, you know, live in a place that's close to their work because the price is so high, the prices are so high to rent in Atlanta. So it would be really interesting to see if voters uh, who are facing this issue, if this, if Stacey Abrams' platform would translate to, uh, I guess, energizing voters who are facing this issue, see if they come out into the, and vote in November. That's one thing yeah. I'm looking. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know that one of the things I thought was interesting with Abrams on Meet the Press yesterday is the way she used the word extreme a lot. So we seem to hear, you know, radical on the Republican side. She used extreme. Her, uh, she talked about Kim's extreme position on abortion, his extreme position on guns, his extreme position on health care, the health care crisis and the housing crisis. So I think this is this each side is looking for its way of kind of looking at the, you know, painting the other side in a way that makes it um, less, uh, less, um, uh, they don't want anybody to think they're moderate about anything, right? So they want to push each side to the, um, to the ends, Patricia, right? I think that's <clears throat> exactly right. I also think that Stacey Abrams and B. Wynn particularly have their work cut out for them. And I single them out in particular because in our AJC poll, we see Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger 
with huge leads among independent voters um, or with significant important leads among independent voters. And so it really is up to um, Abrams and to win to tell voters, yes, despite everything you saw with Brian Kemp being attacked by Donald Trump and with Brad Ravensburger being attacked by Donald Trump, these are not people who are moderate or independent. These are conservative and, in their words, extreme Republicans, because I do think that the events over the last year have really painted um, Brian Kemp and Raffensperger to be sort of their own brands apart from Trumpism and apart from extremism and people who have stood up to those forces. Um, but Abrams um, and when both want to say, no, no, <laughs> that was just one issue on in one specific day um, or it went over a number of days, but it was just on this one question of the election. But on everything else, don't be fooled. These are these are conservatives, and in their words, these are extremists. And it's very important for them to win over those independent voters in order to do well in November. Now, Raul, I'm going to let you um, wrap up this uh, first break before we go to a break. Um, I I feel like I, I'm in the minority on this argument. I, I feel like in the end, you know, whether it's talking to voters or talking to people who are knocking on doors. It's all about both sides getting their bases out. I know there's this big discussion about independent and swing voters, but just the way it feels to me, this is really about Republicans getting their base out and Democrats getting their base out. And, and whatever the issue is, whether it's for Republicans, inflation, gun rights, abortion on the flip side, same, you know, abortion rights, gun violence, you know, I, it just feels like that those swing voters don't matter if your base voters don't get out. And that's, you know, listening to, to the stump speeches on both sides, I feel like that's what this is really all about, is, is getting your voters out on, on an off year, on a non-presidential year. Okay. Well, we're going to take a, a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the federal sentencing for the men convicted of killing Ahmad Aubrey and more. This is Political Rewind on GPB. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut with the AJC's political columnist, Patricia Murphy, GPB's Riley Bunch, WABE's Rahul Bali, and Axios Atlanta's Crystal, Crystal Dixon. And I want to talk now about, you know, we know that the men found guilty of murdering Ahmaud Arbery are already serving life in prison, but could face an additional life sentence today because they are, they're looking at um, the sentencing for the federal hate crimes case that, that they were convicted of. Patricia, this is something that people are really, um, really looking at because of the difference between being in state prison and federal prison. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And in particular, um, uh, the elder McMichael, Greg McMichael, who was convicted along with his son, Travis McMichael, um, of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, is requesting that he be held in federal prison instead of state prison. And he's asked for leniency in that way. And he said um, in his arguments to the judge that he has been the target of specific um, sort of aggression and abuse inside state prison, and he fears for his life. And so he is asking, um, because he has um, been sentenced to life in prison, that that be held in a federal prison where he is arguing he would be safer um, and not in a state prison um, where he's saying it really would be inhumane to keep him there. I don't know how that is going to land with the judge, and I don't know how he would be different from the other two um, who are also up for sentencing. But I do think that the decisions that come down, even though these men are all already sentenced to life in prison. Um, I think the the punishment for the hate crime piece of it will be important because it really speaks to the effectiveness of having hate crimes at all. If you have a hate crime without a punishment that accompanies that, why do you have that crime in the first place? And so I think it's going to um, speak really to the effectiveness of those laws and what uh, the purpose of those laws and also sort of what justice looks like in a crime as heinous as this one was. Yeah, Riley, I know you were at the Capitol, and I was too, Raul, all of us down there, when, when we looked at the uh, hate crimes legislation when the debate was taking place. And a big part of that was what it would actually mean. And this is an example of where we're really seeing what this could mean. Absolutely. And I think there's also interesting that we have the state level hate crimes conviction, right? But now we also have this federal hate crimes conviction. Um, so we already have one life sentence. Are we going to get another life sentence? And I, one of the other really interesting things that I thought um, in Greg McMichael's argument as to why he would want to be in the federal prison system as opposed to a state prison system is how bad Georgia's prison system is. That was part of their argument. And we saw, you know, this. Um, this debate about the really bad conditions in Georgia's prison system um, play out in Congress, right? When um, Senator John Ossoff held that hearing with the, the bureau, prison bureau director. So I think that's something really, really interesting to look at. But I think in the, the bigger scheme of things, this has been such a long journey. Um, it has been such a long journey for Ahmaud Arbery's family, for the community, and it's another chapter that, you know, want, they want closed, but they want closed in the right way and for, you know, what they feel like is justice. So it'll be really interesting to see if there's any leniency with um, how it's sentenced. But, you know, it's, a, it's, it's another step in this very, very long journey. Yeah, Raul, we know Ahmad's mom is really, has really pleaded for them to make sure that, that they, they don't end up in federal prison. And I think that says a lot about our prison system system as a whole. It, it is, you know, it's, there's, a, and we're gonna have more attention on on jails today. There's a, there's a protest about the situation with the Fulton County Jail and using the Atlanta City Jail. I know completely separate, but you know, the, 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 the hearing that Riley mentioned, I mean, the, anybody go back and, and look at our stories on that hearing, because there was some stuff that was said that just even – those of us who've been in Atlanta for years know how bad the Atlanta federal prison is. Uh, and, and we've also heard about state prisons. I do want to mention one other thing on, on Georgia's hate crimes law. Uh, I, I'm going to be interested to see the application of the hate crimes law in 
in the Atlanta spa shootings, uh, as those cases move forward, that's to me going to be one of the first major cases dealing with the you know the state hate crimes law that came after the death of Ahmaud Arbery. I'm, that's that's another thing that I'm going to be watching to see the actual implementation of Georgia's hate crimes law. Yeah, oh, Crystal, I think what you know we're hearing that the. Um, the the attorneys for the McMichaels are asking for them to be in federal prison because they think it'll be better than state prison. But they, that hearing that uh, Senator Ossoff had tells us it may not be as great as they think, depending on where they're sent. So th this really, I think, is um, a, a chance for all of us to look at what our our justice system is about, our correction system is all about, and what's really happening. Yeah, advocates have been, you know, long talking about how um, conditions in state and federal prisons are, you know, essentially deplorable. So it will be interesting to see if politicians or, you know, people at the federal and state level really take, you know, use this, um, this, this, this story as a way to sort of push for changes in, in, in prisons. Um, it will be really interesting to see if this finally becomes an issue that someone will take up and, I guess, push forward. Um, if I had to guess, probably not this year because it's an election year and it's not a very um, interesting topic right now because inflation is on everyone else's minds. But I do think, you know, it's one of those things that's been uh, long talked about and um, it'd be really interesting to see if, if this, if this kind of makes any, uh, makes anyone, I guess, take up the cause. Yeah. yeah Patricia. I do think that Senator Ossoff is going to be um, following this for some time. This was a hearing that he did in his permanent subcommittee on investigations. And the testimony that came out after he subpoenaed the head of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and again, these are the federal prisons, not the state prisons that um, the McMichaels feel are too dangerous for them. In the federal prisons, there was um, discussion about just a systemic um, almost malignancy of sexual abuse of prisoners by guards and even a warden in Georgia has been accused of that, um, that it was brought to the attention of the head of the Bureau of Prisons. Um, and he said he didn't remember that. He said, well, I don't know, it might have been copied on that email, but I don't think so, you know, and he was on the email. Um, and Ossoff was like, how does something like this not rise to your level? Um, of course, the head of the Bureau of Prisons says, listen, it's very hard to staff these prisons. It's very hard to have oversight into uh, something like this with a dangerous population. But also I've made, the, made a, two points in particular. One, a, a portion of this population has not been convicted of crimes in these prisons um, where they are being held in really grotesque conditions. And then even if they have been convicted of crimes, um, there's just a level of inhumanity of the treatment of these prisoners that is really, um, the way it was described, is just totally unconscionable and uh, uh, nothing like anything that should be happening in the first world, uh, even in a top security prison. And so I think it's something that Ossoff will certainly be following up with um, fixes and legislation, personnel changes recommended. Um, I think it's something he'll be on for a very long time. Now, he's not up for re-election, so he certainly has the flexibility to be focused on um, the issues that are uh, of interest to him. But because these uh, prisons, these federal prisons that uh, were brought to his attention are in Georgia, it sort of it has the um, the the attribute of being both a, a sort of a local-ish issue because it's here in Georgia, but also an important systemic federal issue, and that was discussed as well.
Yeah, I think what we're we're going to we're we're seeing the spotlight on prisons in a way that we haven't before in Georgia, not only at the federal level but at the state level. And it'll be interesting to find out what happens today with these hearings. I know that that I think the last one is late in the afternoon. There's there's they're spread out these sentencing hearings today, and we'll keep you abreast of that. And of course, talk about this tomorrow on Political Rewind. Uh, Raul, I want to talk about something else you brought up. There's something else in court today dealing with abortion. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so today is going to be the first hearing on the state challenge um, of, and what I mean by state challenge, challenging on state constitutional grounds of Georgia's uh, new abortion law, the six-week ban that kicked in a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the arguments being made there, the, the most important thing watching for today um, is if the judge um, either considers or opens the door for a temporary injunction uh, of the uh, of of Georgia's abortion of the six week abortion ban, um, that's kind of the first thing. But this is really the beginning of the state challenge of the abortion of of the six weeks of the personhood uh, you know portion of the law. So uh, definitely something we're going to be watching to see. Uh, if there's a temporary injunction or if this case just moves, how would this case move forward? Yeah, Riley? I think it's important to focus on the state constitutional challenge and what they're arguing, right? This is a little different than what we've seen before. It's more on the state constitution's right to privacy. And privacy is, the right to privacy is so enshrined in the Georgia state constitution, more so even at the federal level, right? Um, so that is this new argument that we're seeing with this abortion law um, that we're going to see play out in the court system under this challenge. So whether or not that initial argument is enough for the judge to block this right now again we'll we'll find that out but um it's a little bit different than we've seen before and um we'll see this this argument that it infringes on a georgian's healthcare decisions and right to privacy play out in the courts it's gonna be very interesting yeah, yeah this is something that yeah go ahead oh i was um <laughs> I'm sorry for interrupting you, Donna. Um, I was going to say that this is uh, a piece of the Georgia Constitution that Democratic nominee for Attorney General Jen Jordan has been hyper-focused on. And just as soon as uh, the Roe v. Wade decision came down, um, she said that she would not enforce this law, would not rather defend this law in court because she does not believe that it's constitutional. And that's not based on the federal constitution, but based on Georgia's state constitution. And she, by her description, Georgia has one of the most um, kind of um, aggressive protections of a person's privacy of any of the 50 state constitutions. And other states that do have abortion protections rely on their own state constitutions right now, their own state constitutions, protections of privacy in order to declare their own state laws to be um, constitutionally protected, even without Roe v. Wade um, protecting it at a federal level. And so this is something that um, Jordan picked up on from the very beginning of, of this argument. And it's something that is going to be embedded in all of these arguments as well. Um, as uh, opponents of this law bring it before a state court, state court rather. Yeah, Crystal and then Rahul. Yeah, we've, we've actually heard like local district attorneys have also said that um, they're not interested in prosecuting um, these cases. Uh, so it'll be interesting. What, I, what I'm interested in seeing is this will sort of have a ripple effect across the state. Will we, will we see district attorneys and other parts of the state, um, I guess, follow the lead of their, I guess, more urban counterparts and pull in the cab and say that um, 
they're also not going to, I guess, prosecute or challenge or prosecute those cases. So that's what I'm interested in seeing, to seeing how this, to seeing if this will, um, I guess, uh, be taken up by other district attorneys across the state. Oh. It is interesting. You know, obviously we've seen, you know, some of the urban and democratic uh, district attorneys like Sherry Boston make very clear that they they are don't intend on prosecuting. But, you know, conversations with with Republican uh, district attorneys are also interesting. Um, you know, generally what they're saying is either no comment or I look at these things on a case by case basis. But when you take the conversation, the next step forward, number one. These district attorneys are still dealing with their COVID backlog, along with the crime cases they're dealing with now. So they already have a pretty full docket. The second thing, it was an interesting conversation from from an attorney who's not a district attorney, but but deals with the district attorney, is does this just become the battle of medical experts if you're doing, if you're prosecuting an abortion case? And, and, and so when you're a district attorney, are you sitting here going, do I really want to just go into a case where it's just a battle of the medical experts? You know, if, if it is a clear-cut case, at least one district attorney told me, if it is a clear-cut case where I have to prosecute this, they're going to. But if it's a borderline, you're going to probably see some judgments with Republican district attorneys on, on, on this. And again, one last thing on this real quick. Again, a reminder of how important your list, local district attorney race is, because this is their decision on whether to prosecute a case or not prosecute a case. Whether it's abortion or drugs, you have 50 different district attorneys in the state of Georgia, and therefore you're gonna have 50 different opinions on how to prosecute these type cases. Yeah, because there are 50 different opinions out there, I have spoken with Georgia lawmakers who said that if DAs start to not prosecute this and start to declare that they won't prosecute it, they will come in with a legislative fix next year and require DAs to prosecute these cases if it's brought to their attention. But I think the overall really important piece to know is that doctors um, may not want to take that chance, probably won't want to take that chance. I, they don't want to say, I'm going to perform this um, abortion that may or may not get me one to 10 years in jail. Most likely what I've been told from doctors is that it's just going to have an overall um, sort of paralyzing effect on doctors to say they are afraid to act if it's even close to a borderline decision because they are afraid to both lose their license, which is really something that's done at the state licensing level, um, and more likely to be what would happen to doctors. And then if it was prosecuted by a DA, are you going to take the chance of going to jail for up to 10 years? And so it really, whether or not DAs ever prosecute it, doctors are already scared in this state and very, very worried about their own actions being brought under a microscope and therefore are really feeling forced to change what they would otherwise feel um, protected to do, even if it was legal. Yeah. Well, the Supreme Court sent this issue back to the states. Today, we'll, we'll have find out a little bit about what the state might do, at least on this, this first le leg of all this. We're going to take a break, our final break on Political Rewind, and come back with more from our guests in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut. And as we uh, have our final moments here, I want to talk about something that will, I think, there's some interesting speculation that we can come up with this. Uh, Donald Trump has says he's not against backing Kemp for governor, um, for Donald, uh, Brian Kemp for his reelection campaign. Uh, so he, you know, just a brief moment, uh, somebody caught him on camera saying that he's looking at this, Patricia. It, it really kind of gets us going here in Georgia over what this might all mean. Well, I'm sure that Donald Trump will wait until the polls show that there's no way that Brian Kemp could lose this come hell, high water, earthquake, or famine before he would endorse. And then he, I bet he would endorse and say, and you're welcome. I'm the only reason you won, Brian Kemp. So I think it will, whatever suits Donald Trump's needs and interests is what Donald Trump is going to do. Um, I don't think that Brian Kemp's team is um, hoping for that, expecting that, anticipating that, or e even eager for that to happen. They just want to run the race that he's running and keep his head down and just stay out of the headlines with Donald Trump. And the more Donald Trump even says, well, I don't know, you know, that's like the worst case scenario, no matter what Donald Trump ends up doing. Uh, Riley, I'm thinking that Brian Kipp was just as surprised by that remark as everybody else. Well, I mean, it just is another uh, piece of evidence of Donald Trump's fixation on Georgia and kind of, you know, his, his um, resentment that he feels from the poor outcomes of his endorsed candidates, right, in the primary. And if I was Governor Kemp and I heard that this morning on the radio, I would not be excited because Governor mm -hmm. Kemp has um, been so successful because he's been able to walk this very thin tightrope line of um, not hitting back against Donald Trump. He w hasn't said a bad word against him, right, because he still needs those voters that are loyal to Donald Trump, but also not pushing in and not giving in. We saw that in the 2020 election. He's not going to give in to the pressures to overturn Georgia's election results. So he's been able very successfully to manage this so far, whether or not that means he'll be able to manage it um, going closer to the general election, if Trump decides to come back and, you know, insert himself into the general races, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that that would be great for Brian Kemp at this point, but we'll have to see what um, Donald Trump does, what Donald Trump wants to do. So we'll have to see what he decides to say going forward. Yeah, Crystal, this seems so odd to me, given that he, that Donald Trump did so much to really push for, um, for David Perdue. And now he's like, okay, well, maybe let's just, let me change my allegiances here. Yeah, it's actually, um, I was actually quite surprised to see this. Um, you know, it'd be really interesting to see if Trump actually goes through with this and what Brian Kemp's reaction will be. Um, it will be very, uh, would, for one thing, it will shore up the base, you know, of people who are Trump supporters who may be standing on the, um, on the fence about whether or not they should vote in this election. Uh, but it would be very interesting to see what Kemp's reaction would be. Um, I would be, I, I just don't know what to say about this other than I do not expect, or I would be surprised if Kemp and Trump does a campaign event together, even if he does endorse him. But yeah, this would be a story I would definitely be watching very closely over the next few months. 
Yeah, Raul, I got to say, I the fact that the reporter even asked the question, I thought was was pretty good. I I I'm I'm just going to hold judgment for now because when you watch it, he just said it in such passing. And but I mean, my first reaction is George is just going to George at this point. You know, I mean, what is what, what you know? That's going to be interesting if he if he does an endorsement. Uh, I, I still am much more interested to see uh, when and if the former president will be on the campaign trail for the for his two candidates who did get through, and that's Herschel Walker and Burt Jones, the Republican nominee uh, for lieutenant governor. So um, I'm ju- I, I'm still much more interested to see uh, what visits the former president makes for those two candidates. Yeah, Patricia, it would be kind of odd, I think, to have all of them on together, although there is speculation that we might see, you know, um, them trying to come together, Burt Jones and uh, Herschel Walker and Brian Kemp. But to see Donald Trump with them would be um, kind of a, a strange mix at this point, given all that we know. It would be a strange mix, especially because I certainly would not expect Brian Kemp to join them on that stage. The last several times that Donald Trump has come, Brian Kemp has been nowhere near there. Um, for one thing, he wasn't invited. And second of all, I think, you know, their their uh, disagreements are well-known and important. Um, but I agree with Rahul. I do think it will be very important um, what uh, both uh, Burt Jones and Herschel Walker do in terms of their support from Donald Trump. And Trump has been, as you know, all over the country stumping for Senate candidates. Is he really going to stay away from Herschel Walker, who is one of his older, um, I don't want to say one of his oldest friends. I don't know. <laughs> They've known each other for 40 years, and they are friends. Um, but they're very close personally. Um, Burt Jones was one of the earliest people to support Donald Trump in Georgia. And so um, I think that Donald Trump sees these as opportunities to get his own brand out there. Um, although we've seen um, time and time again that candidates in general elections here in the state who are supported by Donald Trump and overshadowed by Donald Trump and sort of become part of the Trump circus, that does not work well for them. It didn't work uh, in the general. It didn't work in the primaries. And so I think it was it's a big risk for both Walker and Jones. They are both in this familiar place of you can't win without Donald Trump and you can't win with him either here in Georgia. Yeah, Raul and then, um, then Riley real quick. Uh, you know what? Uh, I do believe that those three top candidates will campaign together at some point because there are there are relationships between all three of them. The UGA relationship between Burt Jones and Herschel Walker, and I do expect all three of them to campaign. But I also expect them not to really. You, you, you may remember it was almost like a joint campaign with John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock uh, last year and in, in, into back into 2020. I expect Burt Jones, Herschel Walker, and Brian Kemp to all run their own really distinct campaigns. They'll come together in the same way, you know, at some point you'll expect to see Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams come together for their own event. But they're all running. They're all really, I feel like all of them are running a distinct, distinctly their own campaign. Okay, quick, Riley. I think it represents a problem that both sides are facing, which is the nationalization of Georgia politics, right? Um, Governor Kemp and all the Republicans are up against what the Republicans are doing on the national level while they're trying to reach Georgia voters, and Democrats are the same with um, Congress and, you know, Biden in the White House. They're trying to draw the attention back to Georgia, but it's so nationalized at this point. 
Yeah, that great conversation. I want to thank all of you. I I love the speculation at the end here. It was great. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in to Political Rewind. Special thanks to the talented team that produces this show. Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Jake Cook. Have a great day. Bye-bye.